Uh, well, good morning. And I wanted to just make an announcement. Probably all of you know that Lee and Megan had a little baby boy um, was it a week ago on Monday. Two weeks ago, I'm sorry. And in fact, um, Josiah Lee, it looks like he is here. And we just want to welcome him. He's a new little um, acorn who is going to grow up to be um, an oak of righteousness. So let's just um, give the Lord honor and glory for that. If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Lord, we're bowed before you to acknowledge and to recognize that you are a good, good father. There is, um, we will never know a good, good father like you are. And we just want to acknowledge and just thank you and praise you. And we're just so thankful, Lord, that when we come to you, when we come to you thirsty and dry, that we are not denied. We are not denied by you. And so we do lay our hearts open before you, Lord, your altar, for you to work within us, transform us, Lord Jesus. We need your working in our lives to make us to be more the people that you've called us to be. I thank you, Lord, for, um, for your presence here with us this morning. I thank you for this time that we can just gather together as a community, Lord, and encourage one another and worship you and hear from you, Lord. So I lift up Conrad to you, Lord, as he delivers the word that you have for us this morning, Lord Jesus. I just thank you for the way that you, have, you are speaking to Conrad and that, and that you will speak through him to us this morning. I just pray, Lord, for, for his voice. I pray, Lord, that as he delivers this word, that his voice would be strong and clear, that he would um, be able to speak with boldness, Lord, with clarity, with, with courage, I just pray, Lord, for your protection to be around him, to be as a shield around him, Lord, as he's delivering this word um, this morning and um, in the hours following, Lord, and in the week to come. I just pray that your shield of protection would be upon him, would be around him. And I thank you for this word that you have for us, Lord. I thank you for this um, series on Paul. And I just pray, Lord, again, that your that this word would just honor you, glorify you, and cause us to be more of the people that you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Heidi, for that prayer and greetings in Jesus' name. It's wonderful to be together and to see you all here. This is the third message in our series called Turning the World Upside Down, and our ushers have uh, packets for you if you don't have one, and maybe you forgot one, Um, but you're welcome if you're here for the first time, and this is a series that goes through December, and so you're welcome to have one for today or to take it home with you. There are scripture readings and so on, so if you want to put up your hand, if you want would would like one, you're welcome to uh, have one of those. While the ushers are doing that, and thank you guys for that, I didn't need to ask you, and I appreciate your initiative. I just want to note that in your bullet, in your uh, mailbox this morning, you will find magnets that have Galatians 2.20 on. I am crucified with Christ, which is the key scripture for this series on Paul. It was a key scripture for Paul. Everything for Paul hung on the fact that it was by the 
faith in Christ, not his faith, but by the faithfulness, the loyalty of Christ, that he was saved through the blood and death and resurrection of Jesus. Kate, our worship minister, is not only passionate about worship, she is also a detailed person. Um, She is, by training, an interior designer and uh, pays a lot of attention to detail and a great job of it. And so it has in your mailbox, um, with the magnet, a description of um, what she's hearing from the Lord these days and just an encouragement to you. And it's wonderful, and I encourage you to, uh, to spend some time in it. And also, if you do not have a mailbox here, there are magnets in the back, and you're welcome to grab one of those as you go as well, even if you're here just for the day um, visiting with us. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40, and then to Acts 9, 19b to 31. Uh, Isaiah 40, and then 9 of Acts, 19 to 31. And my friends, where is Isaiah 40 in the Pew Bible? 586, if you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Um, For Isaiah 40, it's 586, and then why don't you go ahead... Colin, tell us what Acts 9 is. 890 is uh, Acts 9. I've been referring to Isaiah 40 periodically over the last few months because I am so impressed with what God wants to do, is calling us to do in this congregation now, but also always. And what's going to happen in Paul's life or Saul's life in the, the... in the message that we look at this morning. I'm going to begin with verse 3 and just read a couple of verses. But this, what you and I are a part of, is a grand excavation project. Amen? We are part of a grand excavation project, which is the highway to Zion, which is the highway to the presence of God. And we are excavating this highway for ourselves, but we are excavating this highway for those who don't yet know Jesus. And Isaiah had this vision, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all humankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When you and I leave this place this morning, we're part of this excavation project if we choose to be. We're part of lowering, valley, valley, lowering mountains and raising valleys and making rough places plain so that people can see Jesus, so that people can see the Messiah, so that people can see this one from whom heaven came to earth. So I just want you to hold that there, and now we're going to turn to uh, Acts 9, um, 19b to 31. This is the passage where most of what I share this morning, actually, uh, we'll also go to Galatians 1. That's a heads up, uh, Colin and the friends in front. Acts 9, 19b to 31, and after a bit we'll transition to um, Galatians 1. Because it's in Galatians 1 that Paul also refers to what happens in Acts 9. So, Acts 9, 13, 19b to 31. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. 
After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. As we have been seeing in the last couple of weeks when we, as we've started the series, Jesus came to earth as the one in whom heaven met earth. That it had been the tabernacle, it had been the Torah. But now it is Jesus. Jesus has come as the one who ultimately is the expression of the Father and in whom heaven now meets earth. And the amazing thing about that, Paul says, is that we as a temple of God together are one in whom Jesus now dwells. Just like he dwelt in the temple, just like he dwelt in the tabernacle. But we individually also are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so also within us individually that Jesus dwells, which means the road to heaven runs through your life. The road to heaven runs right through your life. So that when you go to work and you go in your neighborhood and you go to your extended family and you go home today, the road to heaven runs through you. Now, that was true for Paul or Saul when he gave his life to Jesus. When Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why in the world are you persecuting me? The road to heaven, and, and, and in that moment, Paul was smitten, as we said a couple of weeks ago. He, for then on, it would be different. His life was radically changed. But there was still excavation work to do in Paul's life. There was still excavation work to do because the excavation work is never quite done until we get the glory. And so today, we're going to look at what was the excavation work that happened in Saul's life before he could become Paul, before he could get on with the apostolic calling that God had for him. Saul was, before he came to the Messiah, as we've said several weeks ago, this zealous, most zealous Pharisee Jew who was actively persecuting the followers of the Messiah. He was well known for being a Jew of Jews. Saul was a young man at this point at the top of his game, and he was quickly ascending among his peers. But then the road to Damascus And the Messiah who asked him, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, as I've said, Paul was smitten and was forever different. And I've said, again, the last couple of weeks, we are here this morning because Saul was obedient to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That his understanding of the Messiah and his giving his life to the Messiah has extended across 2,000 years. And we stand in the wake of a man who was obedient to the Messiah's call on his life. It was almost in that moment, and this is a pretty inferior example. For those of you who are not Phillies fans, it's a really inferior example. But in this moment, it was almost that Paul, Saul was the Bryce Harper of his day, who in 
one moment went from being among the hated Washington Nationals to being a member of the hometown fanatical Phillies. Saul was the star of the Pharisees and suddenly, in a moment, is traded to the Messiah's team. I am sure that Bryce expected Philly fans to quickly embrace him, despite the fact that he had been the foe for, for many years. And Philly's fans generally did that this year. In a similar way, though, I suspect that this zealous Saul, who was a pop star for the Pharisees, was probably equally expectant that the followers of the Messiah would now welcome him with open arms. Because the hero had switched sides. The best of the best had turned to them. He was now among them as the most zealous preacher in this new fledgling Jewish sect of Jesus' followers. I mean, why wouldn't they embrace him? What a story. What a testimony. Can you imagine him in the synagogue telling the story of what God had done? He had met the Messiah face to face. He had heard the Messiah call his name. He had been commissioned by the Messiah. He had come to understand that the Messiah was the fulfillment of all God had been doing in the Old Testament and up until this moment. That the Messiah was the fulfillment of what God had done in Abraham and what God had done in Egypt and what God had done in Moses and David in the exile and now fully in Christ. Paul gives every appearance in those early days after the road to Damascus to having the very same zeal that he did when he persecuted the church. The message had changed, but the man seems to be the same. The message had changed, but the man seems to be the same, at least in terms of his zealousy. There was every reason for Saul to have expected that he would become the new hero of these Messiah followers, just as he had been the hero among those who had hated the Messiah before that. And so in Acts 9, Saul starts preaching in the Jewish synagogues that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Son of God, that he is the extension of all God has been doing. And people started to talk. Isn't this the same guy who persecuted us? Well, yes, it is. Then what is he doing in the synagogues preaching about the Messiah? Is this a conspiracy? Is this a trick? Is this a Trojan horse? What's happening here that Saul has switched sides? Luke records, as I read, that Saul grew more and more powerful and he baffled the Jews. Who is this guy and how did this happen? How is this possible? He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Christ. But the baffling soon turned to conspiracy to kill Saul in Damascus. And those who were followers of Jesus and friends of his helped him escape through a hole in the wall. Hardly the hero's welcome that I anticipate he may have expected. At this point in chapter 9, it would appear from the text that Saul went directly to Jerusalem, and, and in fact, he does. But at some point in this text, while he is in Damascus, he also goes into Arabia. So there's this block of time where he's in Damascus, but he sneaks down to Arabia, and then he comes back up to Damascus, and then he goes to Jerusalem. So I just want you to follow that because it's not clear from the text. He's in Damascus. After, he, after uh, his, uh, his meeting the Messiah. And then sometime in Damascus, he goes down to Arabia. And then from Arabia, he goes back to Damascus and then to Jerusalem. And so we're going to see this chron- chronology in Galatians 1. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians 1, 11 to 24. And guys in the front, Galatians 1, 943, thank you. 
Verse 11, Galatians 1 to 24. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. He's de- Paul is defending himself here because people are defaming him and saying he's not the real deal. He hasn't really met the Messiah. He doesn't really know what the, who the Messiah is or what the gospel is. But he's, he's defending himself. And so let's hear how he does that. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing. I was moving up. I was the top of my game. I was the hero. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, and I love that but, because that's true for all of our lives, we're going one direction, but when God, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Do you hear that? He's in Damascus, but before he goes to Jerusalem to consult the Jewish leaders, Christian Jewish leaders, he's going to go to Arabia. And then he comes back to uh, Damascus and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So he's clarifying here. I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Assyria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of him. Because the rumor was that he had gotten this message from some, some of the leaders in Jerusalem of the Messiah. And he says, no way. I got, I got this message from Messiah himself. I may not have seen him on earth or known him on earth, but I, I met him, heaven met earth on the road to Damascus for me. Why did he go to Arabia? We don't know all of the reasons, but N.T. Wright gives us some suggestions that, I, that historically and from what we read in Paul are, are justifiable. Number one, in Paul's day, two people stood out as being heroes of the Jewish faith. I mentioned one a couple of weeks ago, Phineas, who goes into the tent, kills this Jewish man and this pagan woman, and then the priestly line comes out of Phineas. So he was one who was known for his zealousy. The other was Elijah. Elijah was the other hero of faith for the Jews, who was also known for being zealous because of what he did on Mount Sinai. Uh, I'm sorry, what he did on, uh, it wasn't Sinai, where was it? Thank you, Carmel, Mount Carmel, thank you. So what he did in, in, in terms of destroying the uh, priests uh, of Jezebel. And so N.T. Wright suggests that Paul's writings, from Paul's writings, he probably went to Arabia, which is south towards uh, the peninsula below Egypt, uh, in, in Egypt, that he went there to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, as you know, was known as the Mountain of Revelation. It is where Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. It's also known as Horeb, where Elijah had gone after his battle with the priests uh, and uh, 
and, and at the altar, uh, and, and when the fire came down from heaven. Sinai was, N.T. Wright says, the place Elijah went when it all went horribly wrong, and also the place that Saul went for the very same reason. Perhaps Saul went back to Sinai to the place where God had originally revealed himself, where God had ratified his covenant with, peop- with the people of Israel, that he went back to meet this one God just to confirm, just to shore up, am I on the right track? I have gone so radically a different path than I, than I knew. Are you God? Are you Yahweh, the same one from whom the Messiah comes? Perhaps he went back to Sinai again just to hear that affirmation. Whatever the case, he goes back to Damascus after Arabia. Again, the reason this story appears in Galatians is that Saul is coming under fire. But he wants them to know that he got this message from Jesus himself. Then he goes to Jerusalem. But when he shows up in Jerusalem, he tries to join the Messiah followers. So this is several years later. The news should be out by now, is out by now, that he's turned his life around, but still they don't trust him. So he tries to join the team, and they still keep him at bay because they're afraid of him and do not believe that he's a disciple of Jesus. But Barnabas, the apostle of mercy, steps in, defends Saul, paves a way for him to join the believers. And Luke records that Saul goes right back to his zealous ways, preaching boldly in Jerusalem, debating the Grecian Jews so much that once again his life is being threatened. And this guy's off to a great start, right? He's threatened to death in Damascus. He's threatened to death in Jerusalem. He goes from threatening the believers in the Messiah to being threatened for now believing in the Messiah. Clearly Saul has remained as zealous as he ever was. Phineas and Elijah once again, but this time on behalf of the Messiah. But what's interesting is rather than getting excited about having this new zealot on their team, the leaders of the church, Luke says, took Saul to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus was Saul's home. They said, boy, you're going home. You're causing way too much trouble around here. You're just going back to Tarsus. In other words, they sent the zealot home. Perhaps they had enough of a zeal, especially in light of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution they suffered after that. Whatever the case, the league's leading home run hitter was sent home to the miners. And Luke records this line that just makes me chuckle when I read it. They took him home, and then the church enjoyed a time of peace. The zealot went home, and the church enjoyed peace. And not only did it enjoy peace, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord without the zealot. I mean, if if, if he got wind of this in Tarsus, he had to say, wait a minute. What's going on here? I, I was the hero. The church grows after I leave. The church comes to this place of peace after I'm gone. And then there's just silence. There is 10 or more years of silence about the zealot. 10 years. Can you imagine what Saul must have experienced in those years? The doubt, the humiliation, the fear of the future's uncertainty, concern that his place was being taken by somebody else in Jerusalem who was also zealous. Here he was sitting at home in Tarsus, wasting his time while everybody was surpassing him on behalf of the Messiah. 
He was too good for this. Here he went from hero among the Pharisees to a potential hero among the Messiah believers only to be sent home by them. For a person who we know struggles with his ego, and uh, last week Keith Yoder in our retreat suggested that, that, that in fact his thorn in the flesh, some suspect, was his pride, was Paul's pride. This had to be a pretty tough blow at the beginning of his ministry. To be taken out of the game when he expected to be the hero of the game. Given who he was and his, it's, it's history, his history, it's a wonder he didn't turn to... Uh, turn against Jesus and turn against the Messiah followers and become bitter at what happened to him. But he doesn't. And that fact alone indicates the depth of the transformation that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus. The fact that Paul could be sent home so the church could enjoy peace and grow but not become, become bitter was an indication of what the Holy Spirit had done in meeting this man's heart. He had softened his heart. When disappointment and rejection do not destroy us, when our reaction instead is humility and submission because we believe that God's plans for us are bigger than the current moment, then we know we are on the road of God's excavation. When we remain soft in the midst of disappointment, when we remain soft in the midst of of, of rejection, whether we sense that's from God or from others, We know that God's doing his excavation work among us. What did Saul do back in Tarsus? Again, we can only imagine based on what we know from other parts of the story and what history would suggest about that time. And there are three points. First of all, he worked. And so thank you, Kate, for all and team for the way you led us this morning, the way you identified this river that is flowing among us, that is transforming us. Thank you. But you also talked about the fact that we've got to act. Paul did not go home and sleep. Paul went home, and like most, like all Jewish leaders, there were no professional missionaries. There were no professional pastors. There were just bivocational ministers, just bivocational missionaries. And so it is, it is likely that Saul just went home and made tents, because we know he was a tent maker, and his family was likely a tent maker. Now, last week when we were with Keith Yoder um, for our board ministry team retreat, um, he, he's, he told us, and this is the first time I ever heard this, that his suspicion is that these tents were not leather tents, that these tents were rather tents that are this, which is called a tallet. This is a, a tallet, um, is, a, is, is a, in Hebrew, a little tent. Um, Bryce, why don't you come up here? And when the Jews went to pray, they would often put on this little tent, like this. Very nice. Very good, Bryson. Um, they would put on this little tent and they would say their prayers. And so when Jesus says, go into your closet and pray in secret, he was likely referring to the talent, this little tent. And so uh, it is likely that the work Saul was doing, thank you, Bryson, um, was the work of tent making or talent making maybe equivalent to uh, our prayer shawls uh, today. But the talent and praying under it was in Jewish tradition also that place where heaven met earth. So he worked. He found something to do. Number two, given who he was and what he would later write in the epistles, it is surely a time when he prayed. 
It is surely a time in prayer and meditation that he searched the scriptures. Because when we read his epistles, there are so many times, and I haven't ever understood it until this series, that he goes back to the Old Testament, often back to the Psalms. Probably what's likely what Saul was doing in this time was going back to the Old Testament, reading the scriptures again and saying, wait a minute, where is the Messiah in this story? If the Messiah is the fulfillment of Abraham and of Exodus and of David and of exile, then where can I see Jesus back through? And he does. And so we, we reap the benefit of that in the epistles later. It's also during this time, and we know this from his, what he says in, in first, Second Corinthians 12, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in Second Corinthians 12, he's again defending himself. And if you remember the story, he says, I went up into what heaven? I went up to the third heaven. He said, 14 years ago, I had this experience. I went up into the third heaven. What happens to Saul during this time at home is that he receives revelation. In this time when he was taken out of the game, in this time when he probably feared that he was forgotten, in this season of solitude, in this desert, God was still with Saul, the Messiah was still with Saul, and revealed himself in a way that he probably wouldn't have been revealed had he stayed in the game. In fact, Saul says, I can't even talk about this. There aren't any words to describe what I saw in that third heaven. And third, N.T. Wright suggests that Paul got in touch with the philosophies of his day because Tarsus was at a crossroads of of many philosophies, uh, a lot of sexuality, saturated with sexuality. It was a cosmopolitan place full of conversations about logic and wisdom and knowledge. Paul is likely in this moment, in these 10 years, because we know he doesn't reject the Messiah. Probably this is the place, and again, this this is conjecture, but given what he's written later, it would suggest that this may have been the place where he began to understand how the gospel related to the Gentile. How the gospel could be taken cross-culturally from Jewish tradition to the Gentiles because he was living among the Gentiles. So he was working, he was praying, he was developing his life with the Messiah. He was in the midst of other cultures and becoming fluent in them and what they were saying and understanding how the Messiah fits within them. And then the phone rings, and he gets a call, and we'll look at that next week. But Saul doesn't know that yet. He's still in the midst of this 10 years. All he knows is that he, is that he met the Messiah, that he nearly got killed in Damascus and Jerusalem for his zeal, that he spent time with God on Mount Sinai, and he was sent home by the believers of Jesus. And now he's sewing tallets and praying and living an everyday life among ordinary people. Nothing romantic, nothing heroic, no newspaper headings, just 10 years of silence. It's a pretty far fall for a zealot who was at the top of his game not many years before. What does this story mean for our lives? And what is God saying to you and to me about this experience of Saul? First, there will always be a season and more likely many seasons in our lives when we are disappointed by the turn our life takes. There will be seasons in our lives when we are disappointed by the turn our life takes. We were so sure that we knew where God was taking us. We were so sure that we knew what God was was doing. We had a word of prophecy spoken over us and we were sure we understood the pathway coming out of that word. 
We had invested years in what we expected would result in a position at work or in the church or in a ministry role or a new home or a child or a grandchild or deliverance from a disease or from addiction and on and on and on. We were sure. But then silence. Number two, the desert experiences we walk through are always, always, always overseen by a sovereign God who is not paralyzed by the desert. So whether you have done something that gets you into the desert because you took a wrong turn or because someone else took a wrong turn and you get there or it just happens to be the case that for whatever reason you're in the desert, the sovereign God is no different there than any other place. And so for Elijah, he is there. For Jesus, he is there. And for Saul, he is there. Certainly Saul's desert was God's doing because Saul desperately needed this season before he could get on with his apostolic mission. Probably to Saul, it felt like a terrible waste of time. And yet, at the end of the day, God measures our value not by what we do or how quickly we do it. I need to hear that over and over again. But who we are and who we are becoming. It is who we are becoming that God measures our value. Are we open and soft to his, to his work in our lives? The easiest thing in the desert is to fight the desert. To get bitter in the desert. To blame others for the desert. To blame ourselves for the desert. To try to get away from the desert. Or just to settle down and live in darkness and in anger in the desert. But again, every desert that we are in, whether it's the result of God's doing or our own or somebody else, doesn't change whether God shows up in the desert if we are looking for him. He followed Moses into the desert and Elijah and Jesus. And he follows you and is with you in whatever desert you're in now or have been or will be in the future. His ability to transform your life does not depend on whether you're in the desert or not. And in fact, as many of us know, it is often only in the desert that we are open to that transformation. And when we reject the desert, we reject so often the transforming work that God wants to do in us and that Saul was clearly open to God doing in his life. Number three, sometimes the greatest revelations from God occur in the desert. Perhaps because it's only in the desert that we're willing to listen. Perhaps because it's in the desert that it's finally quiet enough, quiet enough to hear God's voice. Perhaps in the desert, we are simply more open to God's revelation. Whatever the case, time and again in the scripture, it's in the desert that the revelation occurs. Fourth, it was in the university of the desert that God prepared Paul to be the apostle and missionary for the rest of his life. He probably thought, I'm conjecturing, but I suspect he thought he was already ready. He had an education, a great education, He had met the Messiah face to face, and he was zealous. I mean, who could ask for anything more? Highly educated, zealous, and he had met Jesus. Come on, go Paul. But it wasn't his time. He was not yet broken. He will become broken. He will get to the point where he says, I am the worst of the worst. I am the lowest of the low. But he's not there yet. God had to take Saul home and teach him in solitude and in the ordinary moments of his everyday life. And it's one more reason I am more confident in God's preparation for ministry of those of us in ministry, and I mean all of us in ministry, and you know I mean that. 
We are all ministers. That's why I'm more convinced that God prepares us to minister through the ordinary days of our lives than he does through any formal education that we get. I hear too many pastors saying, I didn't learn how to minister in seminary to believe that's not true. Fifth, I believe it was at home and alone with God in prayer that Saul gives up his ego. As Kate led us this morning, that Saul surrenders his ego, that Saul gives up his pride, that he, that he releases all that he thought he had to do the ministry of, uh, of the Messiah, that he gave up all he thought was most effective within him to do the ministry of the Messiah. I suspect it was at home that the origins of Saul's statement later in Philippians would emerge in which he says, I counted it all loss just to know the Messiah. All of that, the credentials, the education, the status is nothing to know except compared to knowing the Messiah. And in fact, it too often gets in the way of our knowing the Messiah. Saul had to discover that there was something within him that made him loved by God because of who he was and who he was becoming as a child of God rather than his status and his credentials and education. Sixth, it was in the desert where Saul heard the phone ring 14 years later. We'll get to that next week. Saying, Saul, where are you, man? We need you back in Jerusalem. And so how are you responding this morning as we close to your desert? Deserts are all different, but our God is the same in all of them. And the choices that we make in the desert are pretty straightforward. Find something to do. One of the things that concerns me, and I hear my students talk about all the time, is I'm going to take a gap year and travel. I'm going to take a gap year and do nothing. And I'm thinking, you're going to take a gap year and get in trouble, my friend. You need to be doing something. Do something. Make tallets, make tents, dig ditches, but do something. It's often in the doing of something that God speaks to us. So do something. Develop your life with God. Take advantage of that time to dig into God and to hear God's voice and to cry out to God like you've never cried out to Him before. And number three, just be available and ready and allow Him to do what He needs to do to prepare you for what is next because you will not always be in the desert. There will be a phone call that comes, but don't hurry that call because he is at work in you to transform you while you are there. The desert becomes the place of revelation, the foundation for where he's going to take us next. I want to end with a story of a 40-year-old man named David Garlock, who I invited to my class, my criminology class, a couple of weeks ago. Paul and Linda invited to be there, were there. David was a young man, about the age of 11 or 12, when he began to experience abuse from a family friend. Very serious abuse, threatening to take his life, trying to take his life. At 19 years of age, he and his brother took the life of their abuser. For four months, they were, no one knew where the body was. And David was living, he said, I was high all the time, I was drunk, I was on drugs all of the time. He finally confesses. He goes to prison. He's locked up in Alabama for 25 years. He's 19 at the time. But he was released early. And he was given uh, an opportunity, uh, partly because of Brian Stevenson, who some of you know, 
is an African-American attorney who has been active in the last 30 years or so to get a lot of folks off death row who were wrongly accused, to help a lot of juveniles. By the way, we have more juvenile offenders convicted with life sentences in this state than any other state in the country. But one of the things that was amazing about David was he got a GED while he was, in, while he was there in prison, and then he went to Eastern University nine months later because that's where Brian Stevenson went and got him in there. And now he's working for New Person Ministries and he's working for some of the, with some of the folks in our own congregation. Wonderful testimony. But David said this to my students. You do the time or the time does you. You do the work or it will take you. And you know, we can say that about the desert too. Either you do the desert or the desert will do you. Either in that moment in the desert, you, take, you find something to do, you develop your life with God and you prepare for what he has for you, or the desert will take you over. The desert will undo you. So what are we going to do? Are we going to do the desert or let the desert do us? He also said to my students, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And he also said this, you're not as bad as the worst thing you've ever done. And that's a Brian Stevenson quote. And I'd like to put it in the context of our message. You are not as bad as the worst desert you've ever been in or as bad as the worst thing that took you into that desert. There is always hope. And when Paul talks about hope, he doesn't say maybe. He doesn't, he, Paul never means hope in terms of, boy, I hope this happens. Paul means it's going to happen. I'm just waiting in expectation of it happening. That's our hope, brothers and sisters, in the midst of the desert for those of us who give our lives to the Messiah. So can we accept that God has led us into the desert or at least allowing us to be there? Can we trust that God is with us in the desert and can we submit ourselves to God in the midst of that desert? Can we trust and transform us in the midst of the desert?